0: Well good morning Brunsfield, my name is Alistair, I have the privilege of being the assistant pastor here at the church. Sadly I'm not able to be with you in person in the building this morning, my wife Sabina and I are self-isolating at home but I hope that that will not stop our attention as we turn to God's word and think about what God would teach us from this wonderful passage in Ephesians today. But before we dive in, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to have your word in our own language. Lord, as we turn now to think about it, as we come to learn, Father, we ask that you would give us open ears and give us soft hearts to be transformed by your spirit. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off this morning by being completely honest. Prayer can be difficult, can't it? We speak to people on a Sunday who tell us about a difficult situation going on in their life and we say those very familiar words. I'll be praying for you. But then we go home, we have lunch and we've already forgotten about our promise to pray. Or think about when you sit in a prayer meeting or a small group. You go around and you share your prayer points. You pray for 10-15 minutes together and then you don't think about them until the next week. Or what about those times where you start praying and before you know it your mind has wandered to what you're going to have for dinner. To what time the kids need picking up or that bill that you keep forgetting to pay. Prayer can be difficult because we get distracted. But also it can be difficult because we don't know all the time what we should pray for. Thank the Lord that he has given us instructions in his word that help us see what a biblical prayer life should look like. In Ephesians 3 we see a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians and I think that it is a really helpful model for us to pray. So this morning we're going to be thinking about what it means to pray biblically by asking three questions of this text. Who do we pray to? What do we pray for? And why do we keep on praying? This passage will challenge our prayer lives. It will lift our eyes to see the character of God and it will help us think about praying with the glory of God as our priority. So the first thing we ask, the first question we ask is, who do we pray to in verses 14 and 15? Who do we pray to? This prayer is quite interesting because of how it begins. Paul begins in verse 14. Read with me. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Now, what reason is he speaking about? Well, you've probably noticed that verse 1 of chapter 3 and verse 14 both start with the same words, for this reason, I. That's because verse 14 is a continuation of the thought that started off in verse 1. It's as if Paul was going to go into his prayer in verse 1, but felt that he needed to say more about his ministry and the gospel. And then in verse 14, Paul comes back to his original thought and says, For this reason. Now, looking at the context of these verses, the reason that Paul is referring to must be the mystery of the gospel. The fact that the gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. And now those two people groups have become one a new body, new citizens, a new family, and a temple. As Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 22 tells us. For this reason, Paul says, he bows the knee and prays. But do you see who he's praying to? At the very end of verse 14. Before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul is highlighting the fact that the dividing wall that existed between Jew and Gentile has been turned to rubble. God is not just the father of the Jews who believe in Jesus, but he is the father of all people who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Paul is teaching the church that we pray to God as our father. And the only reason we can come before God is because of what Paul has already been teaching in the book of Ephesians so far. That as Christians we have been chosen by God, forgiven of our sins through the death of Christ, called to be holy and blameless and called to live according to the will of God. Therefore, Paul is saying, regardless of where you're from, regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, as a Christian you can come before God and call him your Father, Now, that truth should blow our minds every time we think about it. Not only are we saved as Christians, not only are we made into a new creation, but we have been brought into the family of the living, the all-powerful, almighty God. And we get to call him Father. That truth should never Stop making us be in awe of the love, of the abundant grace and mercy of our great God. And if we understand that God is a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children, then we realise that there is no better place to run with our petitions, with our worries and with our cares. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 9 to 11, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? No good father is going to pack his child's school lunch and think, well, instead of putting cheese in their sandwich, you know what, I'll throw in a few pebbles instead. No good father would intentionally hand out things to their children that they know will bring them harm. And Jesus says, well, if even you as earthly fathers, who are evil by nature, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more? How much more will your good Father in heaven give good gifts to his children? This is an important place for us to begin when thinking about praying biblically because it is the very foundation of our prayers. We are not coming to a mean, distant, far off deity who doesn't care about us, who reluctantly gives things to his children. We are not coming before a father who delights to see his children in pain and anguish. We're coming before a father who is good. A father who wants to give good gifts to his children, and a father who has gone out of his way to show how much he loves his family. Do you see God as a good father? Are you like a child who knows that in their father they can find shelter, protection, provision and care? Because that is how God is revealed to us in scripture. Not as a distant, stone-faced, far-off deity, but as a good father who calls his people. Who loves his people. And the one who takes sinners like you and like me, and calls us his family. Praying biblically means that we come before God as our heavenly Father. The second question that we ask of this text is, what do we pray for? In verses 16 to 19, what do we pray for? Have you ever stopped and asked yourself that question? I realise that I spend so much of my prayer time focusing on the things of this life this world and the problems that exist to the neglect of the deeper spiritual things we pray for the sick for those in financial need for those looking for jobs for those who need comforting and those are all good and right things for us to pray for but do you notice how Paul immediately takes our eyes off of our own situation And teaches us instead to focus our prayers on the spiritual well-being of a person. In these verses we see two petitions in verses 16 and 18. And in both Paul is praying that the believers in Ephesus would have power. But he isn't praying that they would have some kind of electrical boost or that some mystical force would carry them through the difficulties of life he isn't praying that God would make them into the Duracell bunnies that we see advertised on television who can run longer and faster than any other battery but he starts his petition his first petition in verse 16 read with me I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now what are these glorious riches? Well they are the absolute breathtaking spiritual blessings that all Christians have received through Jesus Christ mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1. Please go away after this service and read that passage and be blown away by God's goodness towards his people. Those truths are the foundation of Paul's prayer. And he prays that they may be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now Paul isn't praying that they would become Christians. He's speaking to a church of Christians. But instead, Paul is praying that Christ may take up residence, that he may dwell permanently in their hearts through faith. The word used there for dwell conveys permanency, that Christ would be the immovable, the unchangeable factor in the Christian's life and that they would grow more and more in him. He is praying that they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would be able to walk the walk, to run the race, to persevere amid all the struggles of living the Christian life in a sinful world. He's praying that they would be absolutely unshakable in their love for and devotion to Christ. Friends, is your prayer life anything like this? If I'm being honest, so often my prayers look nothing like this. We get so caught up with the day-to-day of life that we forget the reality that we are spiritual beings. As Christians, we are in the world, but not of the world. We are passers-by in this life, and the destination that awaits us is far, far greater than this one. But we are here for a reason. And so we should constantly be bringing each other before the Lord. Praying that through the Spirit we would have strength to persevere. Until the day that Christ returns or we are called home to glory. So friends, pray for each other. That Jesus would dwell in your hearts permanently. And that we would grasp What that means, that we have Jesus, the fullness of God dwelling within us. That is the truth that we want all believers to know. And Paul continues his prayer in verse 17 with his second petition. Read with me. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, May have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's words in verse 17 of being rooted and established make me think of a tree. So the living room in our flat looks over a nice park, and every morning and Sabina and every morning and evening as Sabina and I sit and have a meal together, we can't help but notice some of the big trees in the park. Now Edinburgh is a lovely city, but one of the things that all of our friends, visiting friends and family members, comment on is the wind. And from our window on a breezy day, We can see those big trees being battered by the gales that blow through the park. You can see the leaves and the top branches being swept to and fro with the wind that carries them in whichever direction it pleases. But the trunk of those big trees and the roots do not move because they are rooted deep in the soil and established. No wind can move them. That is what Paul is saying. But notice that he isn't praying that they would be rooted and established in love. He is stating that they are. He's saying because you are deeply rooted in love, meaning the love of God is demonstrated in the gospel through Jesus Christ, he prays that they may have power to grasp how long and wide and high and deep the love of Jesus is. Paul is encouraging these Christians by stating their identity in Jesus as he prays for them. It's as if he's saying, despite all the difficulties, despite all the struggles of life, know 100% that you are in the love of Christ and that there is nothing on this earth that can separate you from it. There is nothing that can take that love away. And Paul prays that they would have power to grasp that wonderful truth. But this cannot simply be an intellectual exercise. As I was thinking about these verses, I was reminded of the song I was taught as a child. And you've probably sung it hundreds of times over the years. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. And the chorus repeats the refrain, yes, Jesus loves me. Now, if you sing that with a child who's four or five years old, we'll smile and we'll think it's cute. But stand with a convicted criminal who has done atrocious things and yet has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Sing that song with them. Do you think that there would be a difference? Well, of course there will be. The person who has lived life, who knows their sin, who is not naive to their identity in Jesus, how through his death on the cross they've been taken from death to life, from darkness to light. People with that experience will belt that song out at the top of their lungs because they know it is true. Friends, we are that criminal. We should be those who ask the question, how could God love me? Like the song that we often sing together says, how deep the Father's love for us. We imagine Christ on the cross and our response should be ashamed. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers because it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is. Is finished. If you are a Christian here this morning, that should be your response to the love of Jesus. Not a checklist in our heart of the doctrines that we like. Not an intellectual exercise or a factual understanding that doesn't lead us to praise God. But our response should be an outburst of joy. Because that is the testimony of a Christian. We have gone from being criminals to children of the living God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. That is who we were. But then the glorious truth of chapter 2 verse 4. That should blow our minds and make us lift our voice in endless praise. Because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then the reality that the Bible teaches is that you are still in darkness, a slave to sin and dead in it. Would you listen? To the voice of a saviour who calls sinners out of death and into life. That is the wonderful news that we want to share with you this morning. That there is a saviour who knows everything you've ever done wrong. Who knows all of your thoughts, everything you've ever said. He knows that you're not walking in a right relationship with him and yet despite all of that he loves you. And he calls you to repent and believe in him and find life. That is the only reason that I can stand before you this morning. That is the only reason that we gather as a Christian church because once we were dead in our sins and rejecting of God, but now through Jesus we're alive. Please think about that this morning. Think about who Jesus is, ponder the truths. That this King and Lord loves the broken, loves the corrupt sinner, and makes us rooted and established in love. Paul prays that these Christians would grasp the love of Christ. This love that is too broad, too long, too deep, too high to grasp we cannot begin to imagine the extent of the love of Jesus because as verse 19 says, it surpasses knowledge. But that doesn't mean we stop thinking and wrestling with the extent of that love and it certainly doesn't mean that we leave it in a nice, closed, neat box of doctrines that we bring out on a Sunday. But it means that every single time we hear of the love of God, we are blown away. And we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Friends, imagine if we prayed these two petitions for each other. Imagine if in our prayers we asked that God would help us be amazed and taken aback by God's great love for us. I think that we would see a very different global church. We'd see people who whose love for God is ever-growing and a people who take that love out to the lost people of this world and point them to Jesus. Praying biblically means that we come before God with petitions of spiritual maturity and endurance to run the race. And then the third and final question we ask of this text is, Why do we keep praying in verses 20 and 21? Why do we keep praying? Well, we keep praying because the only response to these wonderful truths that Paul has been praying is absolute praise. In these two verses, Paul praises God and puts his two earlier petitions in perspective by bringing two themes to mind. He states in verse 20 that God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And in verse 21, he speaks about the glory of God. Now, how do these two themes change the way we pray? Well, they change the things we pray for and the way we pray because we take our eyes off of our own situation, off of our own desires and our own interests, and instead, We pray for and through the character of God. We pray for the glory of God. Praying this way means that we want God to get all the glory. That we want him to get all the glory in the church. And that we want Jesus' name to be lifted above every other name. We can come confidently before the Almighty all-powerful good father because we know that he answers prayer how often do we face a situation and neglect to take it to the Lord in prayer we think that oh no that's too big of an ask for God and then we think another is too small or insignificant to bother him with and so we don't pray for the problems that we have in the house that could set us back thousands We don't pray for our work problems with the bad boss that is constantly harassing us. Maybe we don't bring our health problems, our physical issues before the Lord anymore because we just say, well, it's part of life. But if you're like me and every other human being I know, then your tendency is to first rely on your own strength. You try to do things on your own and then Only once you learn again for the millionth time that you can't do it yourself, you turn to God in prayer. But friends, we need to understand that no petition is too big. No petition is too small. God can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And if we grasp who God is, then we will come to the realisation that our petitions are in the hands of an all-powerful God who sustains his people. And Paul ends this prayer not by focusing on himself or the church in Ephesus, but instead he focuses on God, on his glory and on his Son, Jesus Christ. I've wrestled with this and I've thought and I've asked myself, how often do I pray consciously with the glory of God in mind, as a filter through which I bring my petitions? And the answer, if I'm honest, is far fewer than I should. The only reason that Paul can pray, can pen these words, is because God transformed his life. The only reason I stand before you this morning is because God changed mine. The only reason we gather as a church is because God has done a tremendous work in our lives. So why on earth? Why would we focus, would our prayers focus on anything other than God's glory and giving him all the honour that he deserves? This doesn't mean that we stop praying for our immediate needs. But it means that all of our prayers should be for the glory of God. And that should be our priority. Friends, as we draw to a close, let's remember that praying biblically means that everything we do is done with the desire to see God glorified. To see him receive all the honour and to see the name of Jesus Christ lifted above every other name. He alone deserves all the glory. We just have the privilege of praising him and pointing people to that wonderful glory let's pray together heavenly father we thank you for the privilege it is that we can come before you with our prayers our petitions our worries and our fears father i pray that you would change our prayer lives would we focus on your glory Would you strengthen us in our inner beings with the knowledge of the love of Christ? And would you help us make Christ be the unchangeable, immovable person in our lives? Lord, we ask all of this for your glory. In the name of our wonderful, holy and precious Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.